Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 13, Peacemaker. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Before we begin today's show, I have a couple of announcements that should be of interest to you. First, I'm pleased to let you know that we now have a page on Patreon, so if you'd like to support this podcast, you can follow the link in the show notes. Hallowed is a labor of love on my parts, and it always will be, but there are costs involved in hosting a podcast, and I'd greatly appreciate anything you're able to pitch in to help cover those costs. As a token of my gratitude, patrons will have access to monthly bonus episodes, about exciting chapters from church history beyond the lives of the saints. In these bonus episodes for patrons, I'll be talking about many intriguing events and characters that don't make it into the regular show. Apocryphal scriptures, pseudo-gospels, the fall of Rome, the rise of Islam, Charlemagne's empire, Alfred the Great and the Viking Wars, the First Crusade, the Knights Templar, the birth of Gothic architecture, the myth of Pope Joan, the female pope who never existed, the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Borgias and Medicis, Don John and the Battle of Lepanto, the early modern witch craze, the history of exorcism, that's my own academic field, and countless others. Seriously, I have endless material for bonus episodes that don't fit neatly into the lives of the saints. If you become a patron, you'll be able to access these episodes and request future topics that you'd like to hear about. So head on over to Patreon through the link in the show notes. Second, I'd like to close 2022 with a special question-and-answer episode on church history and the lives of the saints. You don't need to be a patron to send a question, though patrons will get priority if there are too many to answer in one episode. I'll include my email address in the show notes, so please do send an email with any questions you have over the next month and a half. They can be about specific saints, whether or not we've covered them in the show, or anything else that interests you in the world of Christianity. I look forward to hearing from you. With that in mind, let's get on with the show. Today we're going to talk about a woman who made heroic efforts for the sake of her family. Her story is quite dark, however, and involves difficult themes like domestic abuse and the loss of children. So if you have a hard time hearing about those sorts of subjects, you may want to listen to another episode instead. Today's saint is a model of Christian patience, who offered up her own suffering for those she loved. The wife, mother, widow, nun, and patroness of hopeless causes, Saint Rita. 
Margarita Lotti, nicknames Rita by her family, was born in the year 1381 in the hilltop village of Roccaporena in Umbria, the mountainous heartlands of central Italy. Her parents were minor nobility and were well-respected in the region for their role as peacemakers between other families. In fact, they were regarded so highly that their neighbors took to calling them the Conciliatori di Cristo, the peacemakers of Christ. But however committed her parents may have been to living Christian lives, they were enmeshed in the cutthroat politics of Umbria by virtue of their station. In such a remote and rugged country, there were few lawful authorities to keep the peace amid the endless wars of the nobility. Whenever they were wronged, or at least felt they had been wronged by their rivals, the aristocratic families of Umbria would take the law into their own hands by theft, extortion, and murder. One killing inevitably led to another, begetting an endless cycle of blood feuds, whose origins were often long forgotten, but whose violence rarely ceased. The Italians had, and still have, a word for these sorts of feuds, a word which has since passed into English, Vendetta. In a world practically governed by vendettas, it was impossible for Rita's parents, no matter how virtuous they were, to avoid playing the game of politics entirely. It was simply a matter of survival. And that was why, when their daughter came of age, they pressured her to marry a nobleman for political reasons despite her own desire to become a nun. As an aside, I should clear up a common misconception. By mentioning that Rita was 16 years old, and her husband 18, at the time of their wedding, in 1397. Some modern accounts, for example the one on Wikipedia, as of the time I'm writing, claim that Rita was only 12, a shockingly young age to marry in medieval Christian Europe. The reason for this error is that the writers have mixed up betrothal, that's a contract signed between parents agreeing that their kids will get married when they come of age, with the marriage itself, which took place several years later. Don't let Wikipedia and the like mislead you. Women in the Middle Ages were often betrothed at a young age, but they got married in their mid-to-late teens at the earliest, not when they were children. Paolo Mancini, Rita's new husband, came from a wealthy family and may have been a useful ally for Rita's parents, but by most accounts, he proved a very poor match for their daughter. Violence and abusive, he is often said to have beaten and belittled Rita in the early years of their marriage. Now, I suspect you already know that people in the Middle Ages, as throughout most of history, 
were more comfortable than we are today with corporal punishments. Whether it was between husbands and wives, parents and children, or rulers and subjects. But while it is true that domestic violence, as we now call it, was more acceptable in the pre-modern world than it is today, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that our ancestors were wantonly cruel. It was understood in the Middle Ages that any kind of discipline had to be proportionate to the misdeed it was trying to correct. In other words, there were limits to domestic violence just like any other form of violence. A husband or father or king who crossed those limits, let alone turned to violence without what was considered a just cause, was undoubtedly committing a grave sin. And it wasn't only the moral pressure of the church that compelled those with authority to treat those in their care with dignity. Medieval court records show that husbands who abused their wives were widely shunned by other men. A man who gained a reputation as a wife-beater would struggle to rent land or work a trade. He could also be forced to leave the parish or be taken to courts for his crimes. Medieval attitudes to marriage were not the same as our own, of course, but men were still judged as good or bad husbands based on the way they treated their wives. According to most versions of the story I've read, Paolo fit the medieval image of a bad husband to the letter in the early years of his marriage to Rita. On top of the abuse, he cheated on his wife repeatedly, having numerous affairs with women while he fought bloody vendettas with men. He was a pretty terrible husband, whether judged by medieval standards or modern. And yet, in spite of all that, Rita made it the great mission of her marriage to convert her husband from his wicked ways. For the next 16 years, she became a model of patience, loyalty, and compassion toward a man who rarely returned any of those virtues. In time, they had two children, both sons, and Rita did all she could to raise them well, despite their father's example. She prayed without ceasing that Paolo would repent of his sins, not only for her sake, but for the sake of his own soul. After many years, her prayers were answered. Paolo was at last converted from his life of abuse, adultery, and feuding. Surprisingly, we know very few details about this all-important event. The when, why, and how are lost to history. All we can say from tradition is that Rita's prayers for her husbands were answered. After years of cruelty, Paolo learned to treat his wife and children as they deserved. He renounced his violent ways, both at home and in public, and he even made efforts to end the vendetta 
with his family's most hated rival, the House of Kikwi. You might expect the story to end there, on a note of happily ever after. But unfortunately, there was more hardship in Rita's future. The reason vendettas are so hard to end is that even if one side wants to make peace, any attempt at reconciliation will appear to the other side as weakness. So it was in the case of Paolo Mancini. Agreeing to meet with his enemies in the house of Kikwi, he was betrayed and stabbed to death. His soul, thank God, had been rescued from evil through the example and prayers of his wife. But in the end, the man who had lived for so many years by the sword was destined to die by the sword. At her husband's funeral, Rita publicly pardoned his murderers and announced that she would not be seeking revenge. But Paolo's brother Bernardo had other ideas. Stirring up the anger of Rita's teenage sons, her brother-in-law rallied them to carry on the vendetta against the Kikwi. Under Bernardo's tutelage, they began to grow into hard and brutal young men, exactly the kind their father had once been before his miraculous conversion. As Rita watched her sons preparing for their new war of vengeance, she prayed that God would spare their souls before they could follow their uncle's path and commit the grave sin of murder. A year later, they had not yet bloodied their hands, when both boys suddenly fell ill with dysentery and died. As horrible as it was, and as much as it must have grieved Rita, her sons had been saved from throwing away their souls. According to tradition, this dramatic turn of events has actually been seen as a strange blessing from God. If the boys had gone on following their uncle Bernardo, they would very likely have fallen into mortal sin and put their eternal souls, as well as their earthly lives, in danger. While it's not a way of thinking that comes easily to us today, when you think about it from a Christian point of view, it's rather obvious. Dying in the grace of God is a short road to heaven. With the death of her sons, Rita had no immediate family left. She was a wealthy widow, thanks to her husband's fortune, and could have remarried if she had wished. But her dream since childhood had been to serve Christ in the convents. And so Rita, now in her thirties, applied to become a nun with the sisters of St. Mary Magdalene in the nearby town of Kasha. These nuns, called Augustinians as they followed the rule of St. Augustine, had already played a key role 
in the history of the Italian church. Several centuries earlier, their most famous daughter had been St. Clair of the Cross, the celebrated friend of St. Francis of Assisi. But the Augustinians of Cascia initially tried to turn away the woman who would become the second of their best-loved nuns. They rejected Rita on the grounds that she was not a virgin. But since that was never a prerequisite to becoming a nun, we can suspect that there were more political reasons, namely her late husband's infamy before his conversion, and the ongoing feud between the houses of Mancini and Kikwi. Rita was not dissuaded. She persevered until the nuns finally relented on one condition, that she reconcile her family with her husband's killers. This was undoubtedly one of the hardest tasks Rita could have been assigned. Yet she had help in high places. As she worked to bring peace to the warring families, like her parents had done so many years before, Rita prayed to her patron saints for help and guidance. Saints John the Baptist, Augustine of Hippo, and Nicholas of Tolentino, the last being a recent local saint of Italy, did indeed come to her aid, and before long, Rita proved successful. Her brother-in-law Bernardo, who had tried to recruit her sons for his vendetta, was stricken with the bubonic plague, this being the early 15th century, less than a hundred years after the Black Death. And as he lay sick, he resolved to abandon the feud. With the vendetta finally brought to an end, Rita was free to pursue her lifelong passion. She was received as an Augustinian nun at the age of 36. For more than four decades, she lived a life of prayer and self-denial in the convent of St. Mary Magdalene at Kasha. Some of her practices of mortification may strike us as strange today, especially scourging, which she is said to have taken upon herself three times a day. But we must remember that late medieval religion had a fair number of morbid aspects that the church no longer encourages. These were, as I said, the decades after the Black Death, a catastrophe that had killed somewhere between a third and a half of the population of Christendom. So we shouldn't be too surprised to find things like this in the lives of late medieval saints. In any event, Rita was rewarded for her diligent asceticism when, at the age of 60, she received a partial stigmata. As she knelt in prayer before an image of our Lord, meditating on his passion, a small wound miraculously appeared on her forehead and began to ooze blood. It is believed that this stigmata, as it's known in the Catholic tradition, signified Rita's union with Christ's suffering as he bore his crown of thorns. It was a fitting symbol for a woman who had endured so much suffering for the sake 
of those she loved. Years later, at the age of 76, Rita's health began to decline. As she lay dying, she was visited by a cousin who asked her if she would like anything from her childhood home in Rocaporena. Rita asked for a rose from their family garden. Even though it was winter, her cousin searched the garden and found a single rose in full bloom, which she brought back to Rita. That's why you will sometimes see her depicted holding roses, in recollection of one of her last miracles here on Earth. Rita's health continued to worsen, and she died of natural causes on the 22nd of May, 1457. She was instantly recognized by the people of Kasha as a saint, and her cult quickly spread throughout the region. In later years, her coffin would be opened no fewer than three times, and each time, her body was found incorruptible. In other words, it had not decayed. For that reason, you can still go to St. Rita's Basilica in Kasha and see her body intact, where it lies under glass in a shrine. After centuries of local veneration in Umbria, Rita was beatified by the Pope in 1610, and finally canonized in 1900 as the patroness of hopeless causes together with St. Jude Thaddeus, the Apostle. In the centuries since her death, this humble wife, mother, and nun has become a worldwide icon of Christian virtue, a beloved heroine of the Church. In the year 2000, to mark the centenary of her canonization, Pope St. John Paul II gave a beautiful address to pilgrims about St. Rita's place in the life of the Church. Here's a passage from the Holy Father's sermon for your own reflection. Quotes, the Saint of Kasha belongs to the great host of Christian women who have had a significant impact on the life of the Church as well as of society. Rita interpreted well the feminine genius by living it intensely in both physical and spiritual motherhood. Her lesson is concentrated on these typical elements of spirituality, the offer of forgiveness and the acceptance of suffering, not through a form of passive resignation, but through the strength of that love for Christ, who, precisely in the episode of his being crowned, suffered, along with other humiliations, an atrocious parody of his kingship. Dear brothers and sisters, the worldwide devotion to St. Rita is symbolized by the rose. It is to be hoped that the life of everyone devoted to her will be like the rose picked in the garden of Roccaporena the winter before the saint's death. That is, let it be a life sustained by passionate love for the Lord Jesus, a life capable of responding to suffering and to thorns with forgiveness and the total gift of self, in order to spread everywhere the good odor of Christ 
through a consistently lived proclamation of the gospel. Dear devoted pilgrims, Rita offers her rose to each of you. In receiving it spiritually, strive to live as witnesses to a hope that never disappoints, and as missionaries of a life that conquers death. End quote. Saint Rita is commemorated on the 22nd of May in the Catholic Church. She is patroness of difficult marriages, victims of abuse, parents, widows, the sick, the wounded, and the heartbroken, as well as of lost causes. As always, I've included links in the show notes to prayers and other resources if you wish to deepen your devotion to her. May Saint Rita, the Conciliatura di Cristo, come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.